today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Aftermath. Amazing stories from real people after the very bad thing. My name is Glenn Washington. Thank the universe that most of us never get what we truly deserve when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Snap. Now we begin knowing that there are mysteries that have no solution, but there are mysteries that we feel we've got to solve for the good of our own conscience. Take, for example, the mystery behind the Vukovar massacre. In eastern Croatia, a small town is called Vukovar. It's where our next story begins. And in this town, during the Yugoslav War in the early 1990s, some 200 people who had been hiding out in a hospital disappear. Sensitive listeners should know this story does contain graphic imagery. Snap judgment. Five years after those people disappeared, on a late summer morning, some 15 investigators drove out to the quiet Croatian countryside, to Vukovar. There, they walked through a wooded ravine to a fenced-off plot of land, about the size of a football field. The land was cleared of trees and bushes and surrounded by UN soldiers. It is just a piece of land. And somebody's telling you that underneath of this, there is a 200 plus dead bodies. The investigators took off their slacks and button downs and changed into Navy single use jumpsuits. They grabbed their picks and shovels and stepped onto a grassy mound. And for a whole day, they chipped away at the earth. There were whispers, doubts that this was the right spot, concerns they'd be digging for days, just making holes in the ground. But mostly, they worked in silence, digging for proof, evidence that something had happened here. So we started to remove the soil of, 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 of the ground, and then what we saw underneath was a completely different story. This way, just roll him over. Just rolling my hair. And of course, the first thing that hits you is the smell um, of decaying bodies. And if I could explain it, I wouldn't to you because it's something you don't need to know. It's it's a sweet. It's it's it's. Uh, it's very difficult to, to explain that. It's like a sweet, very unpleasant smell of decomposition that gets under your skin. It gets in your clothes. You can't wash it. When we, when we found the first body, I remember that. You know, it was a fully skeletonized body. There was a, you see a skull and the hands and the legs. When we exposed the grave, millions of flies came on us. Flies everywhere. Remember, there was, there was over 200 bodies in this grave. They have to clean them off. They have to look for bullet holes. They have to look for uh, knife marks. Whatever it was that would help them decide, A, how they were killed, and B, their identity. The team looking for bodies in Vukovar came from all over the world. Kevin Curtis came from England, where he had been working as a cop. I didn't have a good idea of what was going to happen exactly, because... Um, I'd never been in a war situation before. Vlad Zuro's from the Czech Republic, where he was a cop too. 
The first time he heard about Vukovar, he was recovering from appendicitis, stuck in bed, when all he could do was watch TV. And on the screen, he mostly saw news about Vukovar. Then I saw on, on television the video footage of, of destruction. And through the ruins, people were coming out and they were dragging their like a trolleys of their belongings. And, uh, but but if, you un- if you don't understand what is happening there, you just need to know what is behind this. When Vlad got the call to join an investigation of war crimes in Vukovar... It was like a destiny. We had a purpose. I, was, I wanted to be there because we wanted to find the truth about what happened to those people. Together, Vlad and Kevin tracked down leads across Europe. They went to Sweden, Norway, Germany, and of course, Croatia, door to door. They were writing down stories from refugees and gathering evidence that could lead them to some kind of justice. They wanted someone to answer for the Vukovar massacre. The information, the evidence, started to appear before our eyes. This is horrific. You know, you you just can't, you can't imagine being in that sort of position. One morning, Kevin interviewed a woman who had fled the violence in Croatia to Germany. Kevin brought juice and water to her small studio apartment. And they sat on chairs next to her bed, which was actually in the kitchen. They talked for six hours. When he returned the next evening to follow up, The woman had pushed the bed against the wall and squeezed a borrowed dining table into the narrow room. She set the table with seven sets of cups and dishes. And she said, I hope you don't mind, but I've cooked some food for us. Um, But I also wanted to set it up for my husband and three sons that were killed. And it wasn't as if the, the, the whole house was littered with photographs and things of her family. It was just this one occasion. They would want to see that I was doing this, she said. With each witness testimony, Vlad and Kevin became more and more determined to find the people responsible for the Vukovar massacre and bring them before a court of law. we got to have closure for these people. We've got to have justice for these people. And, and it's our job to do it because if we don't do it, nobody else will. But nobody wanted to arrest anybody. For many reasons, it was very difficult for anyone to actually be arrested for these crimes. Vlad and Kevin were working for an international tribunal, the ICTY, the International Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. So in an odd twist, the governments of neither Serbia, nor Croatia, nor Bosnia-Herzegovina were enthusiastic about a team of outsiders coming in and making arrests in any of these countries. Like, if two wrestlers in a match are both doping illegally, neither one of them wants a ref to come in and start drug testing. If they arrested the opposite side, if Croats arrested Serbs, they could be accused why they're arresting the Serbs and not the criminals on the Croatian side. So they didn't want to do anything about it. But Kevin, Vlad, and their small team of investigators had physical evidence and stories. People they couldn't just walk away from. Son is gone, daughters are gone, raped. They were going to work, going to school, going for the weekend house. And all of a sudden, it all's gone. 
husband is gone, and then, then people are telling you those stories. It was bigger than us, you know. I honestly believe it was bigger than us. We just wouldn't give up. They decided to focus their indictment efforts on a local politician. His name? Slavko Dokmanovic. Slavko Dokmanovic was the mayor of Vukovar when those 200 people were slaughtered. He was radical. You know, he spread the hate. He would go and he would kick people in the head and and shout goal, and not caring and laughing and joking. So he clearly was a part of the machinery. And when the siege of Vukovar was over, Dokmanovic and others commanded soldiers to load men who had been hiding out at a hospital into buses, to beat them, and eventually to drive them on a dirt road to a wooded ravine. At the head of the ravine, the soldiers unloaded the men and shot and killed them. Afterwards, the bodies, some 260 of them, were buried there with a bulldozer. Slavko Dokmanovich aided and abetted all this. The local authorities were underneath under him. Who would put him to jail? Who would put him there? Kevin and Vlad decided they would. So he was definitely one that we needed to indict. The main problem was that Dokmanovic lived across the Danube River in Serbia, where he was kind of protected. International teams weren't allowed to just walk onto foreign soil and make arrests. So they came up with a plan to go to Serbia and lure Dokmanovic back across the river. They'd bring him into UN-controlled Croatia, where they could finally arrest him. But they had to keep their plan a secret from their colleagues. Even within the office of the prosecutor, nobody else knew about it. They called it Operation Little Flower. The plan was Kevin would go undercover as a UN investigator, looking for crimes committed against the Serbs, against Dokmanovic's people, not committed by them. This way, he'd gain Dokmanovic's trust. Kevin is a smooth talker. You know, he knows how to get people on board. He's very friendly. I was better at talking rubbish, if you like, um, and uh, if, I, if I needed to. And, uh, and he was the ideal person for going there and, and, and persuading Dokmanovic to come across. Kevin's job was to go to Dokmanovic's house and convince Dokmanovic to come back with him, to a place Dokmanovic knew he ran the risk of getting arrested. Everybody thought we were crazy. Everybody thought, everybody thought that it would not work. Kevin and Vlad were really nervous. If Serbs found out about the plan, they could be arrested as soon as they crossed the border. I mean, we risked being attacked. We risked being ambushed at his house. We know what we believed he'd been involved in, which was the murder of 260 people. Um, So what's another one or two? Vlad and Kevin decided to split up. Vlad flew undercover into Serbia. He would be Kevin's lookout. And I drove there as a tourist uh, to Sombor, which is the place where Dokmanovic was living. And then I will pretend to be a tourist. Meanwhile, 
Kevin drove across the Serbian border to Dokmanovic's house in a UN car, a white 4x4 Toyota. We go across the Bogievo Bridge. We don't know what's going to happen. Vlad sat down at a cafe, about 150 yards from Dokmanovic's house. He could see Kevin's white car when Kevin and his interpreter pulled up to Dokmanovic's front gate. Then the interpreter goes, ring the doorbell, Dokmanovic comes out, and he opens the gate. When he opened the gates, we went inside, and there's two huge Rottweilers in cages right in front of me. And they were going crazy when we came in. And, and actually, Doc Manovich smiled, and uh, he said not to worry. Um, he's not, not too tall, uh, graying hair, straight, um, with a thick, heavy moustache. Um, and also almost, I don't think he did stoop, but it, it, he sort of gave you that impression that he was in a bit of a stoop. And we started to just chat generally about his time in Vukovar. Then his daughter came in with, with his granddaughter. Then Kevin asked him about his own suffering and the plight of the Serbs. He, he sort of, his face lit up. You know, maybe that's not a bad idea. Maybe I'd get, you know, I could do things for other Serbs as well. Um, and you could, you could almost see his mind working. Does Vlad and Kevin's super-secret plan play out the way they want it to? Stay tuned to hear whether or not they can convince Dokmanovic to leave his home in Serbia. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Aftermath episode. When last we left, Kevin is in Dokmanovic's house in Serbia trying to lure him back across the border. He, he sort of, his face lit up, and you could, you could almost see his mind working. Meanwhile, Vlad was still in the cafe, drinking coffee, and then a Coke, and then more coffee. His waitress was getting suspicious. So she comes to me, and I, I, I spoke super Croatian. So I said, you know, I'm waiting for a girl here. There was this refugee lady, beautiful Serbian lady, who we fell in love. And then we agreed that we are going to meet here. And so I came to Serbia, and I'm waiting for her. Yeah, yes, it's a very touching story. And then she started looking at me like, you know, what a loser. That's when Vlad finally saw the Iron Gates opening. But, but when I saw Kevin leaving, then I was a spay and, 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 and look at the car, and I saw that he was on his own. So he, Dokmanovic didn't go with him. Dokmanovic wouldn't go to Croatia right then. But he did agree to cross the border in two days, on a Friday afternoon. Kevin says he ultimately convinced Dokmanovic to make the journey under the ruse that he could talk to a UN general about selling the property he'd left in Croatia. He would meet VIP escorts once he crossed the bridge over the Danube. And then... After the conversation with the general, Kevin would go with Dokmanovic back home. I said, what about if I come at seven then? And he said, yes, and my wife will prepare dinner for us. 
Over the next 48 hours, Kevin and Vlad prepared for the arrest. And on Friday morning, they got into position near the border. A SWAT team wearing crisp white button-downs and black suits drove out to the bridge and picked up Dukmanovich, pretending to be his escorts. Kevin hid in a military trailer, and Vlad stood behind sandbags. It was like, I don't know, 95 degrees of Fahrenheit, and then there was like a flies flying around. It was this intense heat, and, and the sweat was running around my back. And I was rehearsing the reading the rights. Behind the sandbags, Vlad read the UN version of the Miranda rights over and over. It might sound petty, but we wanted to make sure that if it's audio recorded, people actually can listen to it and understand what, what was being said. We were nervous because there was a last opportunity. We knew that if it's not now, it probably wouldn't happen. On the dot of three, we had a call from the Polish Special Forces that they picked him up and they were on, his way, on their way with him. It was absolutely exciting. You know, it, it was... We knew that we are, we are doing something that is critically important for all of our colleagues and for the justice. And nobody believed that it could be done. And we were that close. We were that close, actually, to, to, to pull it together. But there was still the arrest, and we still didn't know how it's going to end up. When the car pulled up to the border, another SWAT team blocked off the road, forced the convoy to stop, and pulled Dokmanovich out of the car. Dokmanovich was caught totally off guard. And my time came. So I, I went down, and they handcuffed him. We decided to put the, the black hood over his head. So he was terrified. You saw it in him. He was terrified. He was confused. It was on his, you, you felt it from him, terrified because everybody was sort of pointing the machine gun at him. And then this guy comes there and starts to speak in English to him, and he doesn't understand what that guy is saying until it's being translated to Serbian for him. And I start, you know, Mr. Dokmanovic, my name is Vladimir Zuro. I'm an investigator from the Office of the Prosecutor of the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. I remember that to the day. You are charged with the great breaches of the Geneva Conventions, crimes against humanity, and violations of the laws or customs of war for your role in the beatings and killings which occurred at Ovchara Farm near Vukovar on the 20th of November 1991. Do you understand? And then we put him in a car, in the same car that he was arrested, and then go to the airport. To fly him to The Hague. And it all took about 10 minutes, but it was six months of hard work. The Learjet is a very small thing. He was sitting down, I went over to him, I stood in front, and I grabbed hold of the top of the hood and just pulled it off him. He looked at me astonished and clearly recognized me and said in English, for the first time I'd heard him speak English, um, my wife has dinner for you. 
You can hear Dokmanovich here saying he was invited in guaranteed safety. Because he invited me and he guaranteed me safety. I, I, I'm not guilty for you. He suggested... The Learjet idled on the tarmac. We were all sweating and nervous. And then all of a sudden, the pilot says, I got the clearance to take off. And then we took off and there was a silence on the plane. Nobody talked. It was kind of a relief. The, the pilot told us we left the airspace and it was like, yes. There was nothing to stop us, you know, from bringing this guy to the De Hague. We put together an operation that nobody believed could work. It was for the first time. We managed to pull it together against the odds and against the belief of everybody that we talked to that said it wouldn't work, you know, he wouldn't come. He did come. It did work. Nobody got killed during the operation. Nobody got injured. We got him before the judges. Dokmanovich's trial lasted about a year. A year in which Vlad, Kevin, and their team testified before an international court, along with forensic pathologists, politicians, and anthropologists who had come from all over the world. Croatian survivors and family members of the massacre also told their stories. We'd got the evidence together, we'd presented the evidence to the court, and then it was just a case of the court decision. We, we believe we were successful. Everybody believed. Dokmanovich was indicted for inhumane acts, cruel treatment, and murder. Kevin, Vlad, and the rest of their team were confident he'd be found guilty by the court. All that was left to do, wait for the verdict. And it was for the first time we could take holidays. So everybody disappeared from The Hague. Everybody wanted to, to go somewhere, and I promised to my family I will take them to Italy for holidays. So we jumped in the car, we were driving from The Hague across the Alps. The telephone, my mobile phone rings. So I, I tried to pick it and, and I drop it on the floor of the car. So I said, I better stop. So I pull over, found the phone, and I see it was Clint. So I call him back. And as my first words were, so how many years? Because I expected that they announced the verdict. And he says, Dokumanovic is dead. And I said, what are, you, what are you saying? He said, you know, he committed suicide. And I said, are you serious? He said, yes, you know, he killed himself. I was like, damn it. You know, all the work that we put into it, on one side, but also all the hopes of those people that they finally could see somebody responsible for killing of their loved ones. And and he was dead. What why why I did it was because I wanted to see him in the in the court of law where people can point finger at him and say, You mayor of Vukovar, your responsibility was to protect the people, but you chose to beat them and allow them to be killed. Why is the punishment of suicide not enough? You need conviction for closure for the families, the families that survived. And there, there is, I've heard since, 
there's no shame on his family because he was never convicted, which sounds odd, I know, but... Mm -hmm. I guess for me, it's whether or not he committed suicide or if he went to jail, the families are still in the same place, so... No, they're not. They're not in the same place. I'm, I spoke to many witnesses who said, you will never get the perpetrators for this. And, you know, they were talking about from the trigger pullers to, to the highest levels. And, and I said, we will. You know, we will get the perpetrators for this. And you've only got to think about if somebody did something horrible to a member of your family, what do you want? Do you want them dead or do you want them convicted of something? In the years following Abmanovich's suicide, Vlad and Kevin's team indicted 14 people from the region. About half of them went to prison for war crimes. Special thanks to Julian Bourgeois, who introduced us to this story. And thanks so much to Vladimir Zuro and Kevin Curtis for sharing their memories with The Snap. There is so much more to this investigation than you heard here. And if you want to know more, Vlad is writing a book. It's called The Investigator. It will be released this coming November. The original score was created by Renzo Gorio for that story. It was produced by Adiza Egan, Liz Mack, and Shayna Sheely. Now, right after this break, Snap Judgment, the Aftermath episode continues. Stay tuned. Snappers, we are so proud. Because today we're going to present a story adapted from the podcast Reckonings. And while this is a tough story, it's amazing in so many ways. It's a story we believe needs to be heard. Sensitive listeners, please note, this story does contain disturbing and sexually explicit material. Hear me when I say, this is not a story for young listeners. And given the story's sensitive nature, we're not going to use real names. The first time Anwen met Samir was during her freshman year of college at a party. A party called the end of the world party or something like that. He was wearing, I think, like a gray shirt. I think he was wearing like a black tie, too. He was kind of dressed up. Uh, Very tall and pretty, like, broad, too. Truthfully, it was her eyes. Anwen has these fantastic uh, pair of eyes. And just a very friendly smile. I think we got introduced and then he said, hey, do you want to dance? And I said, well, sure, as long as it's not that like bumping, grinding type of dancing. Like I swing dance. Um, And so he's like, "Okay, I know a little bit of swing dance. By a little bit, I mean like little to no swing. But I was willing to learn if I could talk to this girl on one. Samir found me on Facebook, like, I don't know, a week or two after that party, um, and messaged me and was like, hey, do you want to hang out? So we went out and tried to go bowling, um, and there weren't any lanes open, and so then we went and just got ice cream at a store and sat and chatted. I didn't let him pay for my ice cream because I didn't want it to be a date, so I paid for my own ice cream. And he's like, well, that was nice, and we hugged goodbye, and then, like, 
as things work. Like if you hug someone and then you're like coming out of the hug, there's a point when your faces are pretty close. Um, and I think he kissed me then. After that date, I was like really into her. And so I would text her a lot and try to hang out with her and just not get responded. Basically, I was ghosted. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, cool. She's not interested. Anwen's not interested. That's, that's it. That's over. But this was a very small college campus. Anwen couldn't ghost Samir forever. So the next semester, when Samir's fraternity threw a big party. I think we ran into each other going opposite directions, coming to the stairs. And I think I said something about how, like, I was sorry that I had stopped talking to him suddenly. And I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, you aren't ready for a relationship. Uh, I get it. It's cool. And then at some point later that night, I saw her dancing on the dance floor. And um, I went up and I started dancing with her. And, I mean, she started dancing back. So we were dancing and, like, facing each other, like, doing the, like, kind of awkward, like, prom groove thing. And I think at some point we flipped around to where my back was against the wall, and I think that's when he kissed me. At some point, I I did kind of say, like, okay, I, I want to go. I was like, I don't see my friends. I want to go. So he's like, okay. And I think walked me upstairs to get my coat. At which point... <laughs> we discovered that the room was locked and all of my friends had left. Anwen and her friends had put their stuff in one of the fraternity brothers' rooms. Everyone else had all gotten their stuff and left, but somehow that room was now locked and the guy who lived there was nowhere to be found. So Anwen couldn't get her keys or her phone or anything. Then... I saw a couple guys who I knew were from my dorm. They weren't on my same floor, but I could at least get into the building. And so I said, like, hey, I'm just going to follow those guys home. And at that point, Samir said, you can't just leave after kissing me like that. I know that I was like, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I don't want to really be with you. But I was probably also trying to be nice and was like, but you're a great guy. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Then he offered that I could spend the night in his room. I didn't want to spend the night in his room. And I didn't want to keep making out with him. But I didn't know where else to go. I had no condoms anymore because my jacket was also in that brother's room. So I was like, well, we're not going to have sex, but... Um, I still would like to take her back home with me. It was like I had fog in my head. Like I couldn't figure out how to get out of the situation. Please be warned. The next few minutes of this story are disturbing and contain sexually explicit material. We got to his dorm room and like as soon as we were inside, he pushed me against the inside of the door and started kissing me. We ended up in his bed. He kept kissing me. I was underneath him. He started to like 
put his hand at my crotch and like rubbed me hard. And I was uncomfortable and didn't know what to do. And he was on top of me and I was just panicking. Um, and I said, I don't want to have sex. And he laughed and his response was, I know I don't have a condom anyway. And went back to kissing me. We maneuvered around. I was sitting up and he said, take it off. And I said, what? He says, my, like your shirt. I like started to pull up my shirt. And as soon as he put his hand on my breast, like it was just absolute revulsion in my body. And I said, no. And I pulled my shirt back down. Um, and I like curled up on his bed. And I know that I was at that point, like holding back tears. There was two beds and I was like, I would love to sleep in his roommate's bed, but his roommate took like all the comforters and pillows. And at some point he, he like reached down, took my hand and put my hand he still had his pants on, but like he put my hand there and like started moving my hand and said something like, wow, you really, you haven't done this before. Um, and I just curled up against him on the bed between him and the wall. He was huge compared to me. And then he said, your mouth would feel even better. He like moved me and started pushing my head down. Um, on him. This was both something I'd never experienced before and didn't want to be experiencing. I started crying and he finally let me up and he said, it's okay. I'm hard to please. He went to the bathroom and I can remember thinking I didn't want to please you. He, he came back into the room and he got back on the bed and like he put his arm over me. He pulled the covers up and he like laid like holding me. I remember looking across the room to the other bed and just wishing I could be on that bed instead. But I, I didn't feel like I could move. And I, eventually I fell asleep. For a couple days after that, I just was like in a blur. Um, I felt really disgusted. I felt dirty. I like hurt between my legs and I didn't know what to do. What did you think it was? So at that point was my point of like, this wasn't rape because we didn't have sex. We didn't have like penis penetrates vagina sex. So it wasn't rape. It couldn't be rape. I remember having a conversation with my friends in the bathroom being like, I think I have to start dating him, don't I? And being really confused. So the next time Samir texted Anwin, she responded. She told him she was studying in a classroom. He showed up soon after and kissed her. I didn't know how to get out of it. I remember at one point he said, you like that, don't you? And I don't think I ever responded to that. And so... Well, she had stopped responding to my text messages and didn't talk to me anymore. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe that this is just a instance of like a really awkward hookup that did not pan out. 
you know, sometimes when you hook up with somebody, you, you become really awkward around them afterwards. And it doesn't always come out like it does in the movies. Or in the porn, for that matter. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to, like, have to think about him. Because whenever I saw him, it just brought all of this back up. And this, like, icky, panicky tightness in my stomach. If I see Samir, I turn the other way and go a different direction. I, uh, my sophomore year, was training to be an orientation leader um, to orient new students and transfer students to the university. And so one of the trainings that were involved was Green Dot. So the Green Dot Bystander Intervention is this program in a lot of schools that teaches students how to respond to sexual assault on campus. The prompter said that it's, it's, it's assaults when someone uses emotional manipulation to coerce somebody to like do sexual acts. Like sexual assault isn't just based on using physical violence. It's, it's, it's also just putting somebody in a situation where they feel like they can't say no. That night was the first thing that popped into my head. Wait, did I, did I do this? Did this happen? Like, if it ha- did happen, why, why, like, is that how Onwin feels about this? It's like, well, no, like, she would have reported something, but she hasn't. I was terrified that I assaulted her. I was terrified that I had hurt her in this way. I was terrified of myself. Because if this was true and I, and I did assault her, then what did that make me? I was terrified of being found out. I was terrified of being sent to jail. I was terrified of all the consequences that come with, uh, that, mm, uh, all the consequences that come with um, sexual assault and rape. I did not tell anybody um, about this incident. I kept it to myself. And I didn't have anybody that I was like, who I could tell because like, how, how do I say, hi, I think I, I think I assaulted and raped somebody, but I'm not entirely sure. I knew that I wanted to learn more because if this hour long training taught me all this, and then maybe I need to educate myself more. By junior year, Anwen finally talked about that night for the first time. First to her boyfriend, and then to her theater teacher. I guess I just, I I started thinking about it a lot more. And I didn't really know what to do with it. Then she became an orientation leader and took the same green dot training Samir had taken the year before. Oh my god. This wasn't just an awkward hookup. This wasn't right. This was this was assault. It wasn't long before Anwin and Samir ended up at the same orientation training. They were off campus by the shore. He was on the pier and I was on the pier and I think I kind of like had put myself in a corner just kind of watching and like waiting for when he came came by. Um, and when he walked by, I said his name. And I I knew it was her, but I was terrified to turn around, but I did. And she asked if we could talk. And I said, I want to talk about that night. 
And he said something along the lines of like, let me make sure we're talking about the same thing. Like, let me make sure we're on the same page the night you came home with me. And I said, yes. And then I said, name that night. I, I stuttered and I told her that I, I, uh, I told her that I raped her. Whoa. Um, it was a powerful feeling to feel that I was not just crazy and that he also knew that it had been wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I hated myself. I wanted to kill myself. I, I, I asked her, like, hey, like, do you want me to kill myself? Do you want me to, like, turn myself into the police? Like, what, what do you want? What, what can I do? What, what? I know I can't fix this, but what can I do? And that's when she offered to uh, ask if we could talk more. And I said, okay. Anwen would send Samir a text, and they'd meet up on campus, somewhere public. They would try to piece together what happened that night and why. Samir would offer up apologies, and Anwen struggled to articulate what she needed. Their conversation was stuck. So by the middle of their junior year, Anwen went back to avoiding Samir. Then came Take Back the Night. That was one of the weirdest nights of of my college career. It was the beginning of their senior year, and they were both at a Take Back the Night march on campus. Anwen was there as a survivor. Samir was there to support his new girlfriend. She was also a survivor. When the march ended in an auditorium with an open mic, survivors were invited to come up and share their stories. It was, I mean, unrehearsed. I walked up to the mic and started speaking pretty much. And I kind of went through the story a little bit and more just like the motions afterwards, but I didn't say his name and he was sitting in the audience right in front of me. I was actually sitting about 10 feet away from her. I tried really hard to keep myself together. Um, I couldn't look her in the eye, but I felt like such a hypocrite. <laughs> I wanted to call him out. I really wanted to call him out. But I wanted him to be able to come forward on his own. I wanted him to be able to be standing up there with me and speaking the story with me and be able to have the story be exposed in a way that didn't just write us into the categories of like, angelic, pure survivor, horrible, evil assaulter. And I think I actually said, like, if this person comes forward and tells his story, I hope that you'll listen to him. Anwen walked off the stage. Samir never went up. And then I went to Frank. Frank was the director of student conduct at Anwen and Samir's university. So he is the guy you go to when a student is causing trouble, like cheating on exams or serving alcohol to minors, or committing sexual assault. His job is to sit the student down, have a conversation, find out how bad the problem really is, 
and then decide what to do about it. I didn't want a formal proceeding. I didn't want a verdict handed down. Um, I wanted it to be a discussion, and I wanted to decide with Samir what, what the results were going to be. So Frank asked Anwen what she needed to repair the harm Samir had caused her. He asked her to make a written statement about that night, a statement Frank would then give to Samir. It was scary to basically be putting all of this hurt out on the table. It was really important for me to, to have him know exactly what I felt and, and how big the impact was and how often the impact was. Uh, I read her perspective and so many things. Oh my God. Um, I, I did not remember emotionally manipulating her to coming back to, uh, to staying with me. I thought in my brain, I had asked her to take her shirt off. I didn't. I told her. I thought from my perspective, I was being a potential like teacher when it came to like oral sex. Turns out I was basically coercing her into doing this, even though she wasn't comfortable. It didn't sound like me. It sounded like a monster, but that was the hardest part was that like this, this guy who forced himself onto this girl is me. Now I wish I could just go back and talk to the kid. And just be like, hey, dude, like, you're coming, your heart's maybe in a good place right now. But here's some things you need to know before you start engaging in sexual activities with other people that will prevent a lot of pain. If it's not an enthusiastic yes, don't do it. I've made it very difficult for her to enjoy many parts of intimacy. She's had to think about it every single day. And I'm not sure if the wounds are all the way healed. I, I doubt they are, but um, it's a pain that I can't take away no matter what I do. I, I can't take that away. And I know I've said it a thousand times, but I, I am sorry. With Anwen's help, Samir came up with a repair plan. He would write an article for the university magazine exposing what he did. He would push to make Green Dot training mandatory for all Greek letter organizations on campus. And one day, at one of those Green Dot trainings, Samir joined Anwen on stage and they shared their story together. It was pretty awkward. Yeah, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah, it was it was dead silent. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Samir, do you have other? <laughs> <laughs> um, what can I tell you about that that presentation? It actually, I do remember while I was leaving, um, a couple people were saying thank you. I don't know if you, I'm sure you got a few of those. Yeah, um, definitely. Anwen and Samir graduated in 2016, and they went their separate ways. We will occasionally, like, FaceTime and just, like, catch up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just, like, kind of check in every once in a while. Um, 
I don't know, it's a fairly casual like conversation, relationship, word, interaction thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also funny because one of the things I realized, actually, I think during and after the restorative justice process is that Samir is honestly one of the people that knows me best. Okay. We know each other's like deepest, horrible moment, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's, there's not a lot that can't be said. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're pretty spot on about that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I don't think I'll ever lose contact entirely with Samir. A very big thank you to Anwin and Samir for sharing their story. This piece was adapted from the podcast Reckonings, produced by Stephanie Lepp and found online at www.reckonings.show. You can find the full story called A Survivor and Her Perpetrator Find Justice on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. The piece was produced by Stephanie Lepp, with assistance from Nancy Lopez. This is the end of the episode, but the story never ends. If you missed even a moment of Snap Judgment storytelling, find it right now on our podcast, snapjudgment.org. And even though this, this is not the news, this has never been the news, this will never be the news, this is WNYC. Wow.